Welcome to this week's Energy Show. Now, we're recording this show on Earth Day 2021. It's 51 years after the very first Earth Day in 1970. I was kind of wondering when preparing for the show about the origins of Earth Day. What were people concerned about? Did they care about global warming in the 1970s? No. The actual origins for Earth Day really focused on solving water pollution problems. And there were two incidents that happened in 1969, which also happened to be the year that the Mets won the World Series and we landed on the moon. But 1969 in January, an oil rig leaked millions of gallons of oil off the coast of Santa Barbara. So there was just, you know, the beaches in California were covered with black oil and then tar. And then in June of that year, this is amazing, the Cayuga River on the southern shores of Lake Erie literally caught on fire as chemicals, oil, and other industrial materials that had oozed into the river, because we were just dumping all the pollution, all the manufacturing debris into the river, it floated on the top. And basically the top of the river was just a combustible oil and gas lick. And it caught fire. The river was burning. And so those things really incentivized the president, you know, and, and the country to really get started with Earth Day. Now, since then, we've made a lot of progress reducing air, water, and toxic waste pollution. And we're still focused on those problems. But the bigger issue is global warming. All of the world's governments, and I can say all now because the U.S. is joining in, are striving to reduce global warming temperatures to less than one and a half degrees Celsius. And the U.S. is finally getting very active with the pronouncements probably today by the Biden administration of reducing CO2 emissions by 50 percent by 2030. It's kind of amazing that we can do that. It's like in nine years, but let's give it a shot. But in spite of the federal efforts to do this, the battle to reduce and reverse global warming is going to be fought by people. It's going to be fought locally. And one of the most notable local efforts here in California, Silicon Valley, is led by Menlo Spark. Now, Menlo Spark is an independent nonprofit group that works to help Menlo Park become climate neutral by 2025. And they collaborate with local government, businesses, residents, and other experts to apply proven measures to Menlo Park through community engagement. And their efforts are really spreading into other cities and areas around the state. So my guest on this week's show is Diane Bailey. She's the executive director of Menlo Spark. Diane combines an engineering background with a science background, and she's got strong public policy skills. And the public policy stuff is so important. And before joining Menlo Spark, she was at the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC, and Citizens for a Better Environment. So happy Earth Day, Diane, and welcome to the show. Happy Earth Day, Barry. It's great to be here. All right, great. Well, give us a little bit of background on how Menlo Spark got started and who are your supporters? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I joined Menlo Spark when it first got started in 2015. So six years ago, it was started. There are two co-founders who are former Environmental Quality Commissioners with the City of Menlo Park who felt very frustrated at the slow pace of progress addressing climate from a city that is neighboring Stanford University and has a tremendous amount of resources, as well as overall communities that are deeply supportive of environmental action and sustainability. There was just not a lot going on in the city of Menlo Park, and they were both inspired by Al Gore's 2006 Inconvenient Truth film and wanted to see greater action in more affluent communities that could really lead on climate action. And so they started Menlo Spark with the help and support of the Hewlett Foundation, which is based in Menlo Park, to spur community climate action and to develop 
policies to address climate action for smaller cities and suburban areas that are really contributing an outsized share of carbon emissions per capita. And as it turns out, majority of Americans do live in smaller cities. And so that my co-founder's effort was really aimed at waking up smaller communities in suburban America to join the fight on climate. You know, it's interesting because when you're talking about smaller cities, you're talking about, you know, a lot of volunteers, a lot of community outreach. It's not that there's staff members who are in charge of it. So it's really admirable. Now, what does zero net carbon emissions mean? How could a home or a building accomplish that? Yeah, there are all these definitions swirling around. And we like to kind of cut through climate neutral or net zero carbon and talk about reducing carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions to zero by getting off of fossil fuels and avoiding combustion and the sources that contribute most to greenhouse gas emissions or global warming pollution. Zero net carbon emissions has a lot of different definitions, but in general, it means getting your carbon emissions or global warming pollution down to zero by sometimes using offsets or carbon removal to get that last bit of emissions down to zero. And that means reforestation or regenerative agriculture, some of these extra measures that can remove carbon from our atmosphere in addition to kind of the classic mitigation strategies to get greenhouse gases down. You know, I kind of got intrigued with the term of negative carbon emissions or zero net emissions when I electrified my house. And I went a little bit overboard. I'm a solar guy. I put in too many solar panels. And I realized that even when I'm heating and cooling and cooking all with electricity, I still have some emissions. I'm still like buying things that are using carbon. I still have a hot tub that, you know, once a week I might heat up a little bit. And so by putting in extra solar panels, I was able to get to a negative electric bill. And clearly the home is negative carbon emissions, including the vehicle. So it can be done and doing it with offsets also makes sense. But I think as the cost of some of these renewables go down, it's going to be even easier and easier for people to get to flat zero by using a little bit of carbon, but also offsetting it. Yeah, that's right. There's so much that we can do as homeowners or even renters and business owners. There is a lot that we can do to support the transition to a zero carbon economy, including supporting renewable energy, installing solar panels like you're talking about. And Barry, I would argue that you can't install too much solar. There's never enough. And we just need to figure out how to increase our storage of all that great, clean solar energy. And those efforts are already underway to to dramatically increase the amount of energy storage so that we can rely a whole lot more on the abundant renewable energy that we're so fortunate to have here in California. Well, you'll get no argument from me that you can't install too much solar unless you kind of start overhanging your roof. And from a battery perspective, you know, we're in the middle of installing a bunch of battery storage systems for both new and existing customers in Menlo Park. So, you know, it's just what people want. All right. Talking about Menlo Park. So Menlo Park expects to emit 327,000 tons of CO2 in 2025, four years from now. So what are the conceptual steps that the city can take to get to zero by 2025? Yeah, that's such a great question. So the carbon dioxide emissions or greenhouse gas equivalents is always a moving target. And we've made a lot of great progress here in Menlo Park. And so I think that 327,000 ton figure is, is probably a little dated and we're much lower than that by now. But instead of talking about tons of CO2, I like to think more about 
what are the largest sources contributing to global warming pollution in Menlo Park and how do we get those sources to zero or as close as we can. And in Menlo Park, like most other suburban small cities, most of the emission sources come from burning fossil fuels, whether that's in transportation or our buildings. And that's where our actions are focused most. How do we transition all the way off of fossil fuels in communities without taking away people's cars, without taking away cook stoves? We're looking at strategies to catch people as they're replacing fossil fuel vehicles, gas cars, or SUVs, or the gas uses inside their homes. To intervene and help people make better, healthier choices, it's healthier to drive an electric car. You're not sitting in the fumes of gas exhaust. And the same thing's true inside your home when you're replacing a gas furnace or especially gas cook stoves. Actually, the health benefits are enormous when you replace that indoor combustion or gas burning inside your home with clean electric products. And fortunately, the electric products on the market today are a whole lot more efficient and nicer, better functioning products than they were a few decades ago. We're not talking about those old baseboard heaters or old electric coil stoves from, you know, say 1970s vintage apartments, talking about much sleeker and more efficient electric products that can deliver the same services as your gas products and at the same price, but in a much healthier way without burning anything inside your home. And that's really important, especially for folks who already suffer from respiratory illness like asthma or any other health conditions to remove that combustion from your home. You know, talking about the cooking issue, it was really difficult for me to convince my wife to get rid of the, you know, big burner gas stove that she likes. She's to cook on a wok and she cooks a lot. And we tried out the induction cooktop test unit and then we put one in. And boy, it's in, in many respects, it's better. It's faster. It definitely gets hotter. There's less of a mess. And, you know, we don't have to run the exhaust fan. So that's great. And then also, bizarrely, we're in the middle of renovating our kitchen. So the kitchen's gone. And we bought a little, like for 100 bucks, a little, like, countertop heating unit, induction cooktop. And we're basically doing all of our cooking on that little cooktop. And it's fast. It's clean. There's no mess. You just clean the top off with a sponge because it's all glass and it's terrific. And taking another step into the HVAC units, without a doubt, the heat pump heating systems are quieter and cleaner than the natural gas. And I was just so happy when we took those things out. I know it's cleaner, it's healthier, but in many ways, it's also better. And in many ways, it's also cheaper than natural gas. That's right. I'm so happy that you've had a good experience with the electric products. I think we're hearing this a lot from folks as they try induction cook stove or other electric technology. They're generally really happy with it. And boy, when people get behind the wheel of an electric vehicle, the smiles are big. So what we're aiming to do is just help people gain familiarity with these electric products. There are a lot of test drive events where people can try out electric vehicles, especially in partnership with Actera and local environmental groups. You can get an induction cooktop burner from your local library or from groups like Actera just to test it out. As we get these products into more hands, we're finding that people really love them. Now, let's talk about EVs a little bit. You know, I've been driving one for almost 10 years. It's great. I'm on my second EV. What is the Menlo Spark doing to encourage EV charging? Are there more charging points going in in Menlo Park? Because that's sometimes an issue for people. Yeah. So I'm glad that you asked that because the lack of access to charging for electric vehicles is one of the biggest barriers that we're seeing for people 
it turns out that it's cheaper to trade in a gas guzzler and replace that car with an electric vehicle operation cost. You save about $1,000 a year in avoided maintenance and fuel costs. So they're a lot cheaper and healthier. But a lot of renters, for example, don't have good access to chargers where they live. And so we've been working with community choice energy providers like Peninsula Clean Energy and Silicon Valley Clean Energy in Santa Clara County to dramatically ramp up the amount of funding for cities to install EV chargers and make them, you know, widely available at public locations. Also to help apartment building owners install EV charging. It can be expensive to retrofit buildings, to blast through concrete, to install the electrical conduit to support the chargers. In some cases, it's as easier as just installing a standard electrical outlet for overnight charging, but there is a cost to it. And so we've been working with energy providers and utilities to help kind of subsidize the cost for building owners to install these chargers. And over the past few years, there's been a commitment of $24 million to install more charging throughout the area. So we're going to see more and more chargers popping up, not just at our local grocery store, but at apartment buildings and smaller shopping centers as well. Yeah, that's something that's really needed. And we're moving into a new building and we're going through the project of digging up the asphalt and running big conduit, not just for one or two chargers, but we're going to want to make sure that you go through all that work. We're going to run extra conduit now because it's really cheap to run extra conduit so that in the future, I mean, we can have a dozen charging points in our office because that's the trend. We're even going to be having electric trucks, I'm sure, in a couple of years as soon as they're available. Also, when we talk about EVs, the EV that I just got, I think there's almost $10,000 worth of tax credits and incentives from the combination of the federal and the state government. So that's a really big chunk of change to reduce the cost of standard EVs. That's right. If you get on the Peninsula Clean Energy website, you can see there's a really nice calculator so that you can see all the savings combined from the federal tax credit, the state rebate, and then local rebates as well. And every once in a while, there are extra kind of sales promotions to get a few thousand dollars more off from new EVs. What I'm really excited about is new efforts to save on used EVs. So for lower income families, if they're buying used EVs, I think soon we'll find that the sales tax will be erased to support more electric vehicles. The one thing I'd like to see if we could change with with used EVs is to make sure that in addition to no sales tax on those used EVs, that the carpool sticker can be reused because right now the carpool stickers, I think, only last three or four years. Right. That's right. Yeah. The carpool lane access for EVs is a little controversial, but for folks who need to drive, if they're transitioning from a gas car to an EV, you know, we do strongly support those few perks that can be offered. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be a big help. All right. You know, there's a lot of these measures that are on your website. It's an absolutely terrific website. But just kind of at a high level, what are the three recommendations you have for existing homeowners to really start to get their emissions down to net zero? Yeah. Well, thanks for noting that. On our website, there are about 10 measures that cities can take to bring their carbon emissions down to zero. And I won't get into all the measures To make it more relevant for homeowners, it's really a good idea to focus in on fossil fuel use and look at what are your mobility choices if you still have a gas-powered SUV or a car. That is really the number one thing to look at replacing with electric or at least hybrid electric. And then the second most important thing for homeowners is to look at their gas use. 
water heating and heating are about 90% of gas use in the typical home. And these devices don't get replaced that frequently. And so if you are replacing a furnace or a water heater, it's a great idea to plan ahead and make sure that good electrical access at the site of your furnace or your water heater and to really plan ahead for a transition from gas to electric on both of those devices. And one bonus for people who don't have air conditioning is that when you replace your gas furnace with an electric unit, typically a heat pump heater, it also provides cooling. It's the same device just running in reverse. And so there's a huge economy of scale there replacing a gas furnace with electric to get both the heating and cooling together. That's a terrific summary, and I'd like to emphasize the issue about electrical access because you know, these appliances, like a hot water heater, the DOE says they last on the average of 13 years. That's a gas hot water heater. And HVAC systems, a furnace might be 20 years or so. The challenge is when your gas hot water heater goes out or your furnace goes out, you want hot water and heat pretty quickly. And if your electrical service isn't sufficient, usually that means you have to have a 200 amp service. I mean, it could take three to six months to upgrade that with the utility. So the trick is to make sure that you've got that upgrade done in advance. And there's big incentives for doing that so that when your hot water heater fails, it's not if, it's when, and when you want to put in a heat pump HVAC system, it's the same price as a gas system. But especially if you have that infrastructure already in place and you don't have to you know, go crazy upgrading your electrical service. So that's really good. Okay. Yeah, I want to note quickly on that and that we've been working for the past year with a consulting firm called Redwood Energy and a couple of local experts to try to, to help people avoid the high costs of electrification when they do need to increase their service or call PG&E to expand their service. And there are really neat ways to avoid those electrical upgrades now by sharing circuits with so-called load sharing devices. It gets pretty wonky fast, but in essence, your dryer or your cooking can share the same circuit as your EV charger and so on. And it, it's all computer controlled. And here in Silicon Valley, it makes sense. Why not have you know these software controllers to share the electrical power throughout a household? That power sharing can incorporate solar and battery energy storage as well. So there are some pretty neat new technologies that help people, even on a 100 amp panel, a pretty small or older home panel can fit all of the electrical devices that you need. Yeah, I mean, we're routinely doing service upgrades on these systems, and we're finding if you have a 100-amp panel and it's a decent-sized house, it's kind of hard to get there. But if you have a 125-amp panel, there's things we can do by reducing the size of the main breaker down to 100, and then that gives you extra room for solar and a storage, and then you can use this new equipment. And then the other thing is if you're putting in storage or solar at the same time, that 30% tax credit applies to all of that work. So that's an extra incentive that's right there. And that's what people are taking advantage of. So we talked about existing homeowners. What about businesses? What do you do if you have a commercial building and you want to electrify it? What are the steps there? Yeah. For commercial buildings, some of the highest costs of operation are the utility bills. And so we strongly recommend energy efficiency upgrades first and then considering electrification. And one of the reasons is that if you do efficiency upgrades first, then you can really downsize your HVAC equipment and water heating needs. The more efficient you are, for instance, with better insulation or better windows or other energy saving strategies, when you start to incorporate efficiency, you can cut your utility bills a lot. And then that allows you to downsize your HVAC that's heating and cooling, for example. And those are two areas where a lot of money can be saved for local businesses. 
Yeah, and then there's also things you can do in terms of lighting. Tremendous advances in lighting in terms of LEDs, in terms of motion sensors, in terms of ambient lighting. So if you have a lot of windows, you don't need to run the lights at full intensity. You can kind of run them at half. And those retrofits really, really helps. Yeah, I'm going through the same kind of hell with that in that regard too, just doing a complete... (laughs) electrification of a commercial building. It's our first one. By putting in enough solar panels and doing enough energy efficiency, we expect to make the building carbon negative also. That's great. Yeah, unfortunately, these projects can be a little challenging right now, but local energy providers like Peninsula Clean Energy are ramping up some concierge services and free technical consulting services for building owners who are looking to get more efficient and go electric at the same time. Yeah, and along those lines, there are also organizations that provide free consulting services for EV charging infrastructure, which is expensive on a commercial building because you want to put in a level two or maybe a level three charger, and then there's a lot of incentives there for that. Okay, so we've got those recommendations. That's great. But if there are really good public policies, that's going to be driving the economics for businesses and homeowners. What state and local policies do you have in mind that you think we can implement here in California that are really going to move the needle the most in terms of reducing CO2 emissions? Yeah, there's so much going on with cities and local policies to reduce fossil fuel use. Back in 2019, we started a campaign for fossil-free buildings in Silicon Valley, And we've been working with local cities to adopt what's called REACH codes. It means going beyond the state energy code to adopt stricter requirements for new construction. And so far in the two-county area, San Mateo and Santa Clara County area, there are 22 different REACH codes that focus on either requiring or strongly favoring all electric new construction. And each city has a different version. Some are focused on residential buildings. Some are comprehensive covering every sector. Some provide incentives. Others are strictly gas banned. And then a lot of these new codes also incorporate electric vehicle charging infrastructure requirements, meaning that if you build new, you have to go beyond the state requirements for EV charging, make sure there's sufficient electrical power, but also running the lines to support a lot of of charging power at those new buildings. And most of the cities adopting REACH codes for clean construction that avoid gas also incorporate the EV charging standards. And this is going to go a long way to providing EV charging access to an affordable housing and new apartment building. Yes, it's great to see the cities move towards that. And I've been on some town council meetings down here in the South Bay trying to encourage. You you see people pushing back that they don't want to lose their addiction to their natural gas stove. I haven't spoken to a single person who's put in an induction cooktop that hasn't said, I'm changed. And it's the same thing for EVs. I haven't spoken to a single person ever that's bought an EV that says, now I want to go back to my old gas car. So the incentives are there and the benefits are there. All right. So let's kind of put things aside to the world and let's talk more about Diane. What are the things that you've done for your home and your office to reduce your CO2 emissions? Yeah. Ooh, here's where the rubber meets the road. Am I walking the walk? (laughs) So our household, we are looking at electrifying one item every year. It can be expensive to electrify everything at once and and a little overwhelming. And we focused on our vehicles first. So we're a two EV household now and we have our chargers set up and we added solar panels to accommodate the new EV charging needs. And then we've electrified our water heating and our laundry drying. And next on the list will be our gas furnace, getting rid of that. 
and soon after we'll look at our gas stove and replacing that. So it's good to have a list in mind and kind of pace yourself when you're doing these projects, unless you're doing a massive renovation. It can be done and money can be saved in the future, but it takes time to plan out the replacement. So we're about five years into this electrify one thing a year plan and it's going pretty well. Yeah. And you know, the thing to keep in mind also is even if you don't have a big enough solar system, you've got clean electricity from Peninsula Power. So you're already mostly there. That's right. Most of our energy throughout Silicon Valley is 100% carbon free. And that's new. They've been ramping up steadily. But from Santa Clara on up to Daly City, it's 100% carbon free. It's amazing. All right. So how did you get into the environmental movement? What spurred you on to take on this big challenge? Yeah, you know, I started out looking at drinking water contamination. I come from a town that has a couple of local water wells that are now super fun sites and had a lot of folks getting sick from contaminated water. And that really piqued my interest and set me on a path to go out into the world looking for environmental solutions to reduce toxic chemical pollution. And pretty soon discovered that it's not relegated to just drinking water, that there are toxic chemicals and you know, contaminating our land, contaminating the air that we breathe, and pretty soon found myself getting involved in climate action and looking at global warming and what the impacts are. Of course, when I first studied global warming, it was really mostly about polar bears and the Arctic, and so a lot has changed since then. Yeah, it's it's amazing how it's evolved. But I'm just like you, I'm optimistic that we can get there, especially since the economics are on our side, not just, you know, the moral issue of doing it. All right. That's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks, Diane, for joining us on the show. And if you need to get in touch with Diane, you can get in touch with her at Menlo Spark. And Diane, what's the website? And is there a phone number that the public could use? What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, so please visit us at our website. It's menlospark.org, or you can engage with us at fossilfreebuildings.org. And very happy Earth Day. It's been great talking to you. All right, it's been terrific. All right, and also thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcast. So happy Earth Day to everybody. Thanks.